0: Alright. Well, good morning, guys. My name is Zach. So I'm part of the preaching team here at Rock Hill. So I've actually been going here for about nine years. Got saved as a college sophomore over at UMD. Started coming here shortly after. So I'm thankful to get the chance to preach here this week with Kyle being gone on sabbatical. And uh, hopefully after the sermon, you'll be thankful for that too. Um, you, you can uh, decide on that at that point. Uh, regardless of who's up here, though, I loved having the new notepads that are in the backs of the seats for taking notes. That was super helpful. I use those at Citigroup during the week to read off of, and uh, so you guys should definitely take notes, and I'm not just saying that because I'm preaching here today. So so this morning, I want to ask you guys a question. Um, how many of you guys have ever met somebody who's famous or somebody you really looked up to? Okay. A few of you? A few of us? All right. How many of you guys knew that you were gonna meet them? You were a prepared couple? You had VIP tickets or book signing or something? Okay, a couple of you. So for me, one of my most vivid childhood memories was running into Bob Euchre. How many of you guys know Bob Euchre? So Bob Euchre, I was a kid. I was with my dad at a game at County Stadium and uh, there were some people gathered outside an elevator and we're like, why are people here? So we waited and out of the elevator came Bob Euchre. And uh, I kind of just looked at him, just stunned, and uh, just kind of stared, and he ruffled my hair and said, Hey, kid, and kept on walking. (laughs) So I didn't wash my hair for about a week after that. (laughs) Um, Now, had I known I was about to run into Bob Euchre, I might have done a few things. I might have had a brand new baseball. I might have had a Sharpie. I might have had a baseball jersey with Bob Euchre on the back of it. Um, if I really thought about it, I probably would have wrote a letter asking if I could say play ball over the radio sometime because a lot of kids get to do that. I would have wanted to be one of those kids. So uh, instead, all I got was dirty hair for a week, but it was a good memory. So as we dive this morning into the book of First Thessalonians, we're going to be thinking again about preparing for meeting somebody and the moment of actually meeting them. So as we look through here, that meeting is going to be with Jesus. And that preparation is called sanctification. So in light of those two things, we're calling this series Holiness and Hope. So all through 1 Thessalonians, we'll look at holiness and hope. So why are we going through this book right now? So we're in the middle of our thread series. We've been going through a lot of Old Testament books. Why are we pausing for the summer? Well, there's a few reasons. First, the elders chose this because we haven't done a letter of Paul for a while. So Paul's a very major voice um, in the Bible, and we haven't even looked at any epistles since the book of James, which was a while back. Second, we haven't, uh, or sorry, that was the first two reasons. Third, as a church, we've experienced a lot of loss in the past year. Actually, kind of numerically more than we ever have as a church since we've been around. So the book of 1 Thessalonians, uh, they experience a lot of loss as well. And Paul addresses not just loss, but he addresses the future hope and the return of Jesus. He actually talks about the return of Christ in every single chapter, chapter of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. So that's a major theme. Fourth, Paul talks a lot about holiness to a people who are living in a very non-Christian, a very pagan culture. And he brings out a c- compelling picture of holy living within that culture. And he actually looks at, you know, being noticed as living different, living in a world like that. So Thessalonica itself is a city situated on a coast. So you can see a map up there. It's kind of towards the top, middle. So it was actually a major trade route from the east to Rome. So, you know, kind of like Duluth, Port City, you know, a lot of trade going through there. Maybe more than Duluth does back in their day. Um, But so that's where they are. Um, You can see, yeah, where it is up there. And actually it was named after Alexander the Great's half-sister. So a little fun fact for you, it was in 315 B.C. It was actually a Roman general who was of Alexander the Great. He was married to his sister, yada yada, named after his sister. That's where it got its name. It's actually the capital of Macedonia. And what was special about it is it was a city governed by itself. So most cities in the Roman days, they would have Roman occupation, Roman soldiers, Rome would kind of run and and rule there. They were free in in Thessalonica. So kind of sets them apart uh of all the epistles as well the letter of first thessalonians is actually the first one written by paul only maybe galatians was earlier so one of his first letters so now why did paul why did he write this letter so we got to turn back to acts chapter 17 to see how the church got its start uh, but before we turn there i want you guys to pray with me and just ask god for open our, open our eyes to his word this morning so would you guys pray with me Father God, we thank you this morning that we get to gather here before you in the presence of your people, in the presence of your spirit. God, would you move to open our hearts, to open our eyes, to open our minds, to understand your word. Lord, would you help us to see how the coming of your son Jesus for a second time changes how we can live right now. God, would you help us to understand uh, how we should live differently. Uh, God, the things we should think and say and do. Lord, would you also open our hearts to Love you more deeply, Lord, as we would see your love for us. And God, would you help us to love not only other Christians, God, but also the world around us, Um, God, the way that you have loved us. So would you help us to do that this morning, Lord? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so if you guys would turn or tap your way in your Bible to Acts chapter 17, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 9. Again, that's chapter 17, 1 through 9. So I'll start in verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, so they're in Thessalonica a whopping three weeks before they get run out of town. So what happened? Well, they started out doing their usual thing when they come to a new city. They'd go to the synagogue, they would preach on the Sabbath, um, and they did this for three Sabbaths here at Thessalonica. So they're trying to persuade people that Jesus was the Messiah. And a lot of people were in fact persuaded to believe. We see that in the story here. So they started to follow Paul and Silas and Timothy and started listening to their teaching here. And this made the Jews jealous, specifically probably the leaders within the synagogue. So these strangers come in, they start preaching, they have this more knowledge, you know, a higher truth than them and they, they get a little jealous. And what do you do when you get jealous? You form a mob, right? That's what they do. So that's what they start stirring up. Now, here's an interesting thing to notice. So they start stirring up this mob, but when they can't find them themselves, what do they do? They go before the city authorities and they bring a charge against them. And the charge isn't, hey, these guys are teaching that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. That's not what they're trying to, you know, get them on. They're not trying to accuse them of that. What they're trying to do is accuse them as being troublemakers coming to oppose Caesar. So the phrase used here when it talks about turning the world upside down, so it's actually a phrase used to accuse people of being in rebellion against Rome. So why is that a serious accusation? Well, if you know anything about Rome, they crush uprisings. They crush rebellions. They don't deal with any of that, especially people found opposing Caesar. So the people of Thessalonica actually could be themselves stirred up a little bit from this too. And we see that in the story. It says they were disturbed by this. Remember, they were a free city, so they did not have Roman occupation. They had a special status. They didn't have Roman soldiers in their city kind of running everything. So this was a special privilege, and they knew that if Rome got wind, that there's people there saying, hey, there's actually another king. There's another king named Jesus. They were going to have some issues. Roman soldiers might be sent in to lay down a new law. They might lose their special privilege. And the people, you know, the people they brought these charges to, they sense that their freedoms were going to be challenged. They felt the potential of where this could go. So they were pretty concerned. It says they were actually disturbed by this. So remember again the persecution we're talking about here. It's ignited because the Jews are jealous, but the charge that stirs people up is claiming that Jesus is challenging Caesar as ultimate authority. Uh, people back in that day, so an interesting thing, so when somebody became a Roman citizen, they might have actually taken an oath like this one up here. So put your hand on the head of the Roman bust of Caesar or whatever, and this is what you would have to recite. I swear that I will support Caesar Augustus, his children, and his descendants throughout my life in word, deed, and thought, that in whatsoever concerns them, I will spare neither body nor soul nor life nor children, that whenever I see or hear of anything being said, planned, or done against them, I will report it. And whomsoever they regard as enemies, I will attack and pursue with arms and the sword." So you can see pretty quickly if this is what's in your mind as a citizen, you're going to be a little bit nervous, first, of what people would think of you if you start saying, hey, there's another king. His name is Jesus. Or you'd be a little worried if you heard other people saying that and this is what you believe. So that's how persecution starts here. That's how this affliction starts. That's how they're chased out of Thessalonica. And honestly, persecution throughout history has been pretty similar as well. So persecution doesn't come simply because a Christian says, I believe in Jesus, though in some contexts that does happen. But when we're talking in a pagan or a secular culture, persecution comes because of the implications of believing in Jesus. So very commonly what it comes down to is commitment to God versus commitment to government. And I think we don't have a lot of good conception of this, but to think of, for example, Communist China. So you go over to Communist China, um, you know, Christianity is set up opposed to the Communist Party. You can read stories about police actually going into people's house. If you have a cross on your wall or some Bible verse or any kind of decor, police can come in, take those down, put up pictures of Chairman Mao or Xi Jinping. That is the authority that's to reign in your life. And if you put something above that, well, that's a threat to the government. Now you go back to something like the French Revolution during the Reign of Terror. So if clergy at that time refused to take an oath to the Constitution over the church, well, then it was off with your head. And that happened to a lot of them. So right now, if we think about it in our, you know, secular, more pagan culture to think about it, you can be subject to persecution of various forms. Not the same as a French guillotine, but if your beliefs lead you to oppose things like the moral revolution, so believing babies are babies no matter what point of their development, affirming God's design of man and woman and their roles, Believing and affirming monogamous relationship between a man and woman as a definition of marriage. To think and believe these things, what will that cost you in coming days as a Christian? To openly affirm that and believe that. So these are things that aren't necessarily just saying, I believe in Jesus, but they're things that happen because we believe in Jesus. And these things are about worldviews and they're about beliefs. They're not primary political things. Even though right now in our day, you know, it's a political club being swung to try to crown a victor for whose belief is right. You know, that stuff doesn't change hearts, um, and it's really not even political. It's about what you believe. Regardless of that, Christianity and Christians, at this point, are largely being slandered, sometimes for real reasons, most of the time not. But we're being slandered through this process, and I don't think we've seen the end of that. Um, Definitely not yet, even as especially this upcoming week it's expected You know, the actual determination is going to be handed down on Roe v. Wade. So we're going to have to see how things go, what changes, persecution, things like that. What will people think of Christians? What will they think of you if you openly talk about these things? So what I mainly want to highlight throughout this is persecution's not necessarily going to come when you just say the words, I believe in Jesus. But it's going to come when you talk about and when you live out the implications of that belief. When the Lordship of Jesus goes beyond your thoughts and it goes into your actions and your words, people around you are going to feel that. And you'll see pushback against not just you, but against Christ. That's really who they're pushing back against. So 1 Thessalonians, as we go through it, it's going to help us be strong. Be prepared for that. And who better to learn from but Paul? Because what has he done? He's gone in multiple cities before Thessalonica. He's preached in the synagogue. He's claimed Jesus as king. He's been run out of town. Goes in the next city, preaches Jesus as a king, gets run out of town. He does this over and over and he doesn't give up on it. So there's got to be some reason he sticks with it. And as we go through this uh, book, we're going to get some good reasons why we should stay strong in our faith as well. So that's the backdrop of Thessalonians. Uh, Paul basically spends short time there. He's chased out um, and he eventually writes them a letter once he learns about how they're doing since he's left and some questions that they have. So the major themes of this letter are hope and holiness. Like I said before, every chapter of First and Second Thessalonians talks about the return of Jesus, our future hope. Jay Vernon McGee, he's an old-time pastor, he gives an outline of the chapters like this. You guys can read them up here. So the first one is the Christian's attitude towards the return of Christ. Chapter 2, the Christian's reward at the return of Christ. Chapter 3, the Christian's life in the return of Christ. Chapter four, the Christian's death and the return of Christ. And chapter five, the Christian's actions in view of the return of Christ. I don't know if you guys noticed a theme in those, but it's the return of Christ. So, what you realize from that and what you'll realize as we go through this series is the return of Jesus should influence everything in our life. When we think about him and Jesus coming back, it should transform the way we think our attitude, our life, our actions, future reward, even our death. So if Paul shows this to be so important, I want to ask you guys this question this morning. When was the last time you seriously thought about the return of Jesus and what it means? When was the last time you seriously thought about that? Now I have a feeling we would have lots of different answers for that in this room, just depending on who you are. Uh, But I think in general, in more recent Christian culture, you know, we've had a really big disservice in this arena. And this is just me talking here, something I feel like I've observed. You guys can decide if you agree with me or not. But it seems that generations before me, primarily like my grandparents' generations, so they had a big focus on the end times and the study of it. So many books, many predictions, even some dates were set, movies were made, things like that, and it was really a hot topic. But some of it over time, You know, it got a little weird. Um, You know, with those dates being set, you get new theories. uh, Christians just diving headfirst into end times uh, theology, eschatology. So, eventually, you know, non-Christians, even some Christians started looking at this stuff as, that's the wacky Christian stuff. That's the weird stuff. Uh, And in response, for us, in our day and age, we have this big concern to not be wacky Christians. We want to be intellectual. We want to be relevant. We want to be balanced Christians. And so I think with that, we've largely shied away from diving deep into eschatology and especially discussing it openly in any public square, Um, sometimes even with friends and even among Christians, we don't seem to talk about it that much. So to kind of do a, you know, a test here to see if I'm right on this, how many, if we're doing a quick poll, how many in this room know where they stand in regards to dispensational premillennialism, historical premillennialism, amillennialism, uh, pre-trib, post-trib, who's got, who knows right where they're at? Okay, couple hands and to kind of, you know, I'm not calling out anybody in the room, but most of the hands I went up are north of the age of 40 and 50 years old. I don't judge you, I'm just, that's what I'm noticing. So what's my point? I really believe this generation, my generation, maybe one above, definitely one below, we've been deprived of the benefits of thinking deeply on the return of Jesus. And I include myself in that list. So we're a generation of Christians who have been deprived of the benefits of thinking deeply on the return of Jesus. And I think for some of us, even as we start talking about this, the word eschatology, you know, it's kind of a scary, intimidating word. It's like a big church word. But it's not a varsity-level Christian sport. How do we know that? Paul is in Thessalonica for how long? Three weeks. In three weeks, we can see that the end times were not skipped over. Paul didn't say, this is above your head, I'm not going to touch it. He taught actually so strongly about the imminent return of Jesus that eventually in 2 Thessalonians, he actually has to address an issue where people stopped working and started mooching off others because they figured, I'm not going to do anything until Jesus comes back. He is coming back that soon. Paul told them they're wrong, of course, but that's just really highlights Paul was teaching about this stuff with these people three weeks of their Christian life. So as we go through 1 Thessalonians, we're going to keep taking a deeper look into the return of Jesus. And by the end of it, we're going to show you the exact order of events, give you the exact identity of the Antichrist, and we'll have the dates and time determined for the second coming. <laughs> Those are actually the three rules that you don't want to do when you're studying end times. So just keep that in mind if you study on your own. And if you do discover anything as you're studying, let me know. I would also be interested to hear what you find. So, uh, one other thing, you know, Mike suggested this and I thought this was a good idea too. I put up here the official statement from the EFCA. So Evangelical Free Church, that's a denomination we're a part of. So this says, as a member, you know, this is what you've affirmed, just so you know, if you didn't know already. Um, So, we believe in the personal, bodily, and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ at a time known only to God demands constant expectancy and as our blessed hope motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. So, this is pretty general, but, you know, this is a statement from our denomination. So, that's where we're going to stand on paper there. So, what we're going to do is look at the second coming And we're going to do a really quick flyby of what it should do in our lives. We're going to look more at this in the weeks to come, but we want to think what should this do for us right here, right now. And really the the big overarching theme of this whole series is going to be Christ's return should compel hope and holiness in the midst of hardship. That's our big theme. Christ's return should compel hope and holiness in the midst of hardship. So we should be compelled to hope even in the face of death, we should be compelled to holiness even when we live in a world that's morally confused and twisted. So as we do an overview of Thessalonians, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to pick out a verse or two from each chapter and we're just going to do a quick kind of look through of what these verses mean. We'll obviously get deeper into this as we go throughout the series. So I want you guys to turn with me. We're going to start in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. So verse 9. Here's what it says. <clears throat> for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So what's happening here in this verse is Paul is kind of telling the Thessalonians, you know, why he's writing the letter, what he's heard, and uh he's letting the Thessalonians know, hey, among all the churches in the region, pretty much everyone, they've heard about your faith and they've been encouraged by it. So the Thessalonians as a church, you know, they're kind of like the new believer who comes in and they've got kind of a wild testimony. They've been saved out of a lot of things um, and it's amazing what God has done in their life. That's the case for the Thessalonians. So we know some of the believers here, they were Jews or Greek converts. Uh, But we also, and we know that from Acts 17, but we also know that probably a lot of them that Paul is writing to at this point, uh, they don't have a lot of background knowledge of the Old Testament. Not a lot of them probably are Jews at this point. Um, And the reason we know that is because when we look through 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, you actually don't see any references to the Old Testament. So Paul's not assuming these people have a big background knowledge of the Old Testament. He's probably writing largely to a Greek audience who's been raised Greek. You know, that's the way that they think. So they're not thinking in those terms. Now, how do we know that's probably the big theme of the people as well? Well, he says, in their life, what they did is they turned from idols and they turned to God. So in Thessalonica, there were at least two forms of idolatry that were pretty widespread. The first one was the cult of emperor worship. So when it comes down, you know, remember that oath that they had to take. When it comes down to the leaders, you know, they were essentially deified. Rome itself was worshipped in the form of the god Roma, which was Rome personified, And uh, there was an idolatry of the state, the government, and the leaders within it. So that was a big part of worship and that would, you know, work out in different ways in their life. But the second was also a worship of a variety of other gods. So we know that at this time, you know, they were worshiping a lot of different Egyptian gods, Greek gods, sometimes kind of an intertwining of the two. Um, In particular, you know, there were a few, like the cult of Kabyris. And this was a god who promoted fertility and the protection of sailors. You know, they found... uh, relics, essentially, that show that was a particular one worshiped in Thessalonica. You know, other gods like Dionysius, the god of wine. You know, all these different gods, when we look into them and what they stand for, they promote things that are not so moral in our terms. And we can actually see that because when Paul writes throughout the book and he's got 22 commands of, you know, don't do this and do this, we start seeing the things he's writing about is sexual immorality, drunkenness, you know, among other things. So pretty much the exact things these gods stood for. So Paul says, you turned from these idols and you turned to God. Now, as he says that, we see the comparison of idols to God. So when Paul uses the word idols, what that would bring up is this idea of something that's lifeless, false. um, You know, it's impotent. God, on the other hand, is called the living and true God in this verse. So he is active, he's real, he's life-giving. And we see that this living God, he gave his Son from heaven— and this is the one who the Thessalonians, you know, they're now waiting for. This is who they're waiting for to return. And he's done, he's done something for them. He's promised salvation from the wrath of God that is coming. And as they wait for this salvation, what are they doing? Well, waiting implies they're not going back to the old ways of idol worship that they were in. As they wait for Jesus, they're waiting, living the way that he has called them to. And when we talk about this wrath that they're waiting to be saved from, that they have salvation from, we're talking about wrath coming because of the sin committed in idolatry to all sorts of idols and things that are not God. Not just in Thessalonica, but through the history of mankind. That's the wrath that we're saved from through Jesus Christ. So the proof of these things, as we look at this passage, is in this. It's in that Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, but it's in the fact that he rose again from the dead. It says he raised this son from the dead and the Thessalonians are now trusting in him to do the same for them someday. So that's chapter one. Like I said, we're just going to go through these really quick. So let's move to chapter two. We're going to look at verse 13 in chapter two. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, You accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. So Paul, what he's done is he had sent Timothy back to Thessalonica when he's at Corinth, and he sent Timothy back because he was essentially worried about this new church he had just established. He's there for three weeks, he gets taken away, and now he's gone for a while. So he's worried they were going to be led astray by false teachers or simply that they'd abandon their faith because of persecution and affliction they were experiencing. So Timothy goes and Timothy comes back and he brings back a good report that they're standing firm in their faith. Now, how could this be if their teacher who introduced them to the faith, the knowledge of Jesus, is taken away after just a few weeks? You know, they had no ESV study Bibles, they had no Right Now Media, they had no coffee cups with inspirational verses on them. You know, no daily bread emails, they had none of this stuff. So how are they still standing when they've only had three weeks of teaching? Well, they were solid still because they took Paul's words about Jesus and they turned to God in faith. They trusted the good word about Jesus and it was working in them. So the Holy Spirit was taking the truth and he has been changing the Thessalonians in the time Paul has been gone. He's been working in their hearts to keep them in the faith and to keep them maturing. And this is not a one-time event. You know, the Thessalonians needed to keep maturing in their faith as time goes on and so do we. Because even as we see, you know, more and more testimonies of what God has done in our life, you know, more and more confirmed about his reality and his love for us, that doesn't mean that walking with him necessarily gets easier as we go. Same thing for the Thessalonians. So we continue to need the word of God to sustain us and to keep us growing. So this is also why, you know, we take courage to do things like church planning. This is why we send out missionaries. Because we're not just hoping in, you know, We can send some good teachers. We can do some good things. We can start this church because we have a good program and XYZ to do it. We do these kind of things because we trust that the Spirit of God is going to establish the things that he wants to establish. And we step out in faith and trust he will keep these things going. He will sustain us and he will make them happen. Now we're still called to do the work along with that, but ultimately we trust him to do it. All right, moving on. Chapter 3, verse 11. Chapter 3, verse 11. Why don't you guys turn there. It says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you. So that, we, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So Paul prays that he'd make his way back to see the Thessalonians again. That's what he wants to do. But more than that, he prays that they would continue to grow in their love, not just for one another, but even for people outside the church. He wants that love to continue to grow. And actually what he says is he he says, we pray that you would love as we do for you, as we have loved you. Now, something we're going to see is a big theme throughout Thessalonians is actually imitation. And it sounds kind of cocky of Paul to say, hey, I want you to do this, and I want you to do it the way that I did it. But what he's doing is he knows that it's one thing to call people to live a certain way, and it's another thing to actually model it for them. So that's Paul's goal. He knows that discipleship is not just about words spoken, it's about life lived and giving an example. And so Paul is always setting the example. And then he's pointing them to that example. And he's not just pointing to himself, but ultimately he's pointing to Jesus, who he himself is following. So that's what we're looking at there. And you'll see that theme come up again and again about imitation of Paul. Ultimately, imitation of Christ. Now, there's a purpose for Paul in wanting their love to grow. Right? That's what he says. He says, I want your hearts to abound in love, to increase and there's a reason that he does this, and the reason is so that they may be blameless in holiness before God when Jesus returns with all his saints. So what's he getting at here? Is he getting at sinless perfection? He wants them to be blameless? Well, kind of yes and no. Obviously, being sinless would be ideal in our own lives. That would be, you know, the goal. But Paul is getting at something else. He's specifying that our hearts are to be the holy part of us. So our hearts should be ready for Jesus to come back. Holy means set apart. So our hearts should be set apart from the world so they can be for God. So sin and the desire for it, that is not what should dominate our hearts. David Guzik, one commentator, he says this. He says, The devil wants us to develop a holy exterior while neglecting the interior like whitewashed tombs full of death. You know, that's exactly what Jesus says to the Pharisees in the gospel. He says, you look good on the outside, inside you have no love for God. So when we think about meeting Jesus, don't think about the actions and good deeds that you can have stocked up to show him on the day that you meet him, which, you know, we know there is reward for that. Those are good things. But think about the degree to which you could look him in the face with love, overjoyed at his presence Because your heart desires nothing more than him. That's what Paul is talking about, to have a blameless heart in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all his saints. And even that word, his saints, you know, we are his holy ones. That's what saints mean. That is who God is making us to be. So this is a love Paul wants to dominate our hearts. I want you guys to move on again. We're moving on quickly here. Chapter 4, verse 13 and 14. I'll let you look there. Here's what it says. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So this might sound kind of morbid, but I really like the way Paul talks about death. Um, it's the same way Jesus talks about death for the little girl in Mark chapter 5 um, who he brought back to life. He just says they're sleeping. You know, they've just fallen asleep. You know, they talk about it like it's this temporary thing which we're eventually going to wake up from, which for the believer we will when Jesus says wake up the same way he did 2,000 years ago to that little girl. So even though Paul talks about death in this way, which I like, you know, just talking about, it's just sleep, you know, he doesn't minimize the reality that death is painful. I think sometimes we can take verses like this and kind of extrapolate that Christians, you know, death shouldn't really bother them. You know, we shouldn't really be that sad with death because we have a hope, right? But Paul doesn't say that in this verse. What he says is we grieve but not without hope. So we grieve, we cry, and we hurt. You know, for those of us who have experienced, we feel the unnatural feeling of being with a loved one as they're with us one moment, and then they're gone the next. And it's a moment of just disbelief and anguish, and it doesn't feel right. It hits us like it hits anybody else. Christian, non-Christian. And when we have loss, we grieve. We're gonna hurt, and there's pain. But, We don't grieve without hope. And that's what this is all about. For us as Christians, our king, our actual king, the one we're talking about coming back, he was dead and now he is alive. We have a hope. And this is worth something. You know, this is something of real value because where else is there a hope like that to be found with any legitimacy to it? You know, you think about, in science, your dead body is nothing but decaying carbon and it was nothing else besides that at any point anyways. Even if you think about Thessalonica, you know, this place where they're worshiping all these other gods and everything, there was an inscription at that time and here's what it said. In Thessalonica, they found it says, after death, no reviving. After the grave, no meeting again. What a cheery statement. You know, that's, yeah, that's not what we have to deal with as Christians. So it's no wonder with thoughts like that In a culture that we live in there is a big fear of death you know we want to be insulated from it we want people to go to nursing homes and people at hospitals and we don't want to have to think about death in a serious way because honestly it can never have any meaning or hope apart from christ and something real found with him his resurrection so that's our hope that's our blessed hope everyone in christ dead or alive awake or asleep our hope is that we will all be together when christ returns And we'll have eternity together with the Lord. That's what we have. So we don't grieve without hope. Now finally, we're going to turn to chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. That's where we'll pick out our last verses here. So verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So, I drive around a lot for work and this week I saw a big sticker on the back of a truck window and it just said, nobody cares, try harder. That's all it says. So, yeah, I read that and I'm like, you know, I can get some of the loving sentiment this guy's trying to get across, but I couldn't help but think right away, this is like the exact opposite of what the gospel is. You know, there is work to do and, you know, even before we get to these verses, Paul spends a chapter and a half just outlining commands. In the book, again, there's 22 commands of do this, do this, do this, don't do this. But as Paul closes his letter, he reminds them the weight is not completely on their shoulders. You know, there's someone else who's going to share the load with us as we pursue the sanctification process. It's not just work harder um, and it's not nobody cares. Somebody does care. So there's work to do. Sanctification is a call for us to get to work, give all of our effort into this but God cares and he has promised that he will be the one to complete it. And he has promised to help us along the way. He's even promised to help will within us to want to do it. Now we're going to talk a lot about effort and sanctification throughout this series and really we should because God's word talks about it a lot. But our hope is ultimately that God is going to do it. Back to that sinless perfection. Not one of us can achieve that. And we're not going to stand before God with a record of sinless perfection. So we need him to to perfect us. We still need salvation to save us. We need forgiveness of sins. So, and with that, I don't want sanctification and salvation to get confused within our minds as we're thinking about, well, work. I I don't work for salvation, but I'm working for my sanctification. You know, what's going on here? Salvation is the work of Christ on the cross. Sanctification is a process of applying that to our life to put sin to death and to live more righteously. So it's a process. I think there's kind of a helpful thing up here to think through. Salvation is free and it takes away the penalty of sin. Salvation sanctification, excuse me, is a process and it's the broken power of sin in your life and you gradually living more and more with that power of sin broken. Lastly, glorification, that's the moment when finally the presence of sin will be gone. So it's a one-time event a process, and a one-time event. And for us, we live in that process. That's where we are. Now the encouraging part of this all, as Paul points to at the end of the letter, is God is going to see to each step being completed for the believer. If you know Jesus, if you put your faith in him, you have salvation. The penalty of sin, the wrath that is to come, that is off of you. Christ took that for us. Now we're in sanctification. We're preparing for the day that we meet him and when we will be with him, sin will be gone forever in his presence. So I want to wrap up our time with a few questions and a few applications here. First question I have for you, and in all of these we're going to think about as we go throughout the series. First question, how does the return of Jesus change the way that you live now? And I want to ask a follow-up question with that, too. You know, not to make you think of your life and feel guilty for anything you've said or haven't said, but to really make us think about, am I internalizing this? And think about this as we go through the series. But here's my question for you. Do we think and speak in terms, with words, real enough for anyone around us to genuinely believe that we believe the governments of the world will be displaced and deposed with a new king over a new kingdom? And that all who don't enter that kingdom through Christ will face wrath from that coming king. That might sound a little, sound a little fire and brimstone this morning, but that's exactly what we believe as Christians, and that's exactly what we're going to read about throughout this passage. So if, if you think about your own life, and this is a convicting question for me too, you know, is there anybody, you know, would anybody around you be like, hey, that guy thinks Jesus is actually going to come back and like set up a new kingdom? Would anybody around you actually say that and think that? Second question How does the return of Jesus change the way we see death? So, as we think about death and think about the hope that we have, how does that change the way that you actually think about it? Well, again, we'll talk about this in upcoming weeks. Third question How does the return of Jesus change the way you see coming persecution? So, when I say coming persecution, because in chapter 3, verse 4 of 1 Thessalonians, we'll see that Paul talks to the Thessalonians and basically tells them, Hey, You've been promised, we're telling you, affliction is going to come at some point. It might not be right now, but it's coming. Be prepared for it. So it's going to come in some form or another as you continue to hold your faith throughout your life. How will you handle it? And thankfully, we'll get a lot more answers to that. But remember the promises, the hope given to you, um, and we'll keep going into that because, again, Paul is a pretty good example of how to do this. Now, finally, here's my big point for the day. If you guys haven't heard it already, prepare for the moment that you meet Jesus. Get yourself ready for him. Like I would have had a fresh baseball and a Sharpie in my hand if I knew I was going to meet Bob Euchre that day. What are you guys doing to prepare for the moment you meet Jesus? You know you're going to meet him. What are we doing right now? So, if you are preparing to meet him, then I want you guys to think on, study more what his return means, and take notes throughout this series. If you guys haven't been thinking about preparing to meet him, well, then I want you to think on, study more, what the return to Jesus means, and take notes throughout the series. Same thing for each of us. And if you're in that place and you actually don't even know Jesus, you know, he's not your Savior, talk to me, talk to a pastor, talk to someone else that you know does believe in him. um, And we would love to help you enter into that step one, that salvation that God has provided for us, free of charge in Christ. So last of all, I just want to leave you guys with the words of the Apostle Peter. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So let's pray together. Father God, you are holy. You are far above any imagination we have or any other God we could think of. God, we pray that you would sanctify us and set apart our hearts for you alone. Lord God, would you transform us by your spirit, God, knowing that we want to pursue you and follow after you, but God, we know that we need you to do the work. So Lord, would you do that for us this morning? Lord, would you produce in us a love for one another, uh, for people who don't know you, and God, most of all, a love for you so that we would treasure nothing above you, Lord. Would you help us as we worship to think on these things, God? And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.
1: Thanks, Zach. So we are now going to respond to the preached Word of God in a few different ways. Uh, We're going to sing songs of of praise and worship to our God. Uh, We're going to give joyfully of our tithes and offerings. We're going to hear about some things that are going on in the church and announcements. But first, what we're going to do is we're going to remember the body and the blood of Jesus that takes away our sins, and we're going to do that by eating and drinking the Lord's Supper. There's nothing magical about communion uh, I, I once had a pastor friend of mine who said, you know, he was, he was an older guy and he would go up and he'd, he'd say, we've just heard the audible word of God and now we're going to experience the edible word of God. <laughs> I love it. No, communion is meant to help us remember Jesus's deep love for us by dying on the cross and then rising from the dead. Um, If you are not a Christian, I'm I'm really glad you're here, but I would ask that you not partake of this uh, family practice. Um, I would really love for you to take what communion represents, which is life in Jesus. Um, And if you became a Christian this morning, uh, I would love to meet you in the back after the service, give you a hug, call you my brother and my sister. Um, And you are welcome to come forward and and to, to say to the world, I believe in Jesus. I need him. And I'm going to do this act, eating and drinking, uh, because Jesus told me to do so, to remember his body and blood. Um, If you are still asking questions, if you're still doubting, just remain in your seat. There's no shame in that. We've we've all been there. But if you are a Christian and you want to proclaim to the world, yes, I do follow Jesus, you can come up the center aisle and take communion back in your seats. Uh, I'm going to read the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 that explain the significance of the Lord's Supper. So hear these words from the Apostle Paul. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. until he comes so bow and france are going to be up here when you are ready you can come forward